Hello and welcome. My name is Alex MacPhail and this is High Performance Teams. I'm a former aerobatics display pilot from the South African Air Force and I love talking about high performance teams, what makes them work and what we can all learn from them. In the show, we talk to race pilots, professional sportsmen and women, entrepreneurs, comedians, performing artists and more. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. A very good evening to you. Welcome to the show. My name is Alex MacPhail and I'm thrilled to bring you today's guest. Gideon Langefeld, a mentor, a friend, a colleague, a leader, instructor, float plane extraordinaire. Stay tuned. Exciting stuff ahead. Gideon, great to see you. How are you doing today in Frankfurt? Hello, Alex. Yeah, f- fine, thanks. Thank you very much. How was your we flight? We in this morning. Yeah. And uh, when we left Cape Town last night, we had maximum zero fuel weight, maximum structural weight, and we landed here this morning at max landing weight. So... <laughs> I think we could have made some money there. Oh, good. I'm sure there were some very happy people with their repatriations getting themselves back home again. The guys no, are doing yeah, a good job. Looking, for- <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you in a couple of days' time. But Gideon, for those who don't yes, know sir. you, you've got a very rich and uh, diverse and interesting history. You've had many wonderful conversations at all hours of the day or night. We've flown together on the Boeing 737-200, the 737-300, the Airbus 330, the Airbus 340, the Airbus 350. We've been, I've been your student, I've been your co-pilot, I've been a competition on the racetrack, and we've been in the same team yeah. on the racetrack. For those who don't know you, start from the beginning. As an 18-year-old, 20-year-old, when you joined the Air Force, uh, where did it all begin for you? Well, yes, um, Air Force. My, uh, my brother was... Uh, um, already a pilot uh, in the airline when I was still finishing with school and I thought that I would take my own, own direction and maybe go and study something and uh, so I first of all started uh, with my national service I went to the army and I was an infantryman for a year and a half and then uh, halfway through my first year my sister-in-law uh, actually convinced me to uh, to do the thing that I always wanted to do as a kid, you know, and also join, uh, join the flying. So I applied for, for training in the Air Force, and I was lucky enough to be accepted, and the rest is history. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that history just now, Kirin, there's lots to talk about. So you were selected as a fighter pilot, <clears> and uh, fast-forwarding a little bit, flying the Air Maki MB-326, you find yourself in the bush, and at a, quite a young age, you end up with quite a senior responsibility as the flight commander of Impala Flight in the bush. And this is no Mickey Mouse uh, three, four weeks in and out. You spend a whole year, move your whole family there. Tell us about that, uh, the time in the bush there, flying Impalas, looking after a, a band of brothers. There's a whole bunch of pilots there. It's difficult times. Talk us through how you ran that team. Yeah, it was special times. Um, you know, we had uh, uh, 10 aeroplanes. I had seven pilots and uh, there were 48 ground crew. Um, with us, uh, but they were not really uh, in my team. They were the uh, the technical on, on the technical side, so they were not really under me. But they worked as a support uh, staff for us. Okay. So uh, it was fantastic, big time. And I know you had. Uh, so let's just get some of these pictures out here. People like to see the pictures. I'm going to put a picture up now that you shared with me. That's you sitting on the ejection seat of the uh, the Mark II, and there is Miss South Africa. Tell us how that thing played yeah. out. Well. You know, uh, some uh, sometimes these uh, celebrities used to come up to 
wish us well and to uh, support the troops and get the morale up a little bit. And that was just a picture that I had uh, from my Impala days. And that's, uh, I think it was uh, Janine Botbale. She came to visit us. And oh. so I was uh, sitting there and showing her my office. <laughs> Very nice. Well, uh, I'm sure it did work, you know. Nice to have the pretty ladies around. Um, so, Gideon, so at the end of the war, you've spent a, a chunk of time there. You've uh, established yourself as a, a leader. People have uh, respected you. They've worked with you. They've enjoyed the, the way you operate and you, you share the work around with the people that are willing and keen. And uh, that coincided with the end of your, uh, your time in the Air Force. The war ended, back to the squadron, and that was when you started making your move. So that, what was your transition from the Air Force into the civil world like? <coughs> Yeah, you're right. Uh, so when uh, Resolution 435 of the uh, United Nations stopped us to f uh, flying above a certain uh, um, latitude, we uh, we actually moved the, the command post to Ondang uh, from Ondangwa to Grootfontein. And uh, it was there for just a short while, and we realized that we uh, this is the end of it. So uh, we packed up and we came back to the States. Well, we called the Republic of States, um, <laughs> and we we did actually, and uh, and then uh, back to Four Squadron, and there I just had to wait for my cheetah course. And uh, when uh, halfway through that uh, transition, I I realised that uh, I think it's it's time for me to to move on. So um, I had to re resign from the from the Air Force to to put in my bid to. Um, to apply by the airline, and, and I was very lucky to get in there as well. Okay, now you had a bit of so a, sh was, <laughs> a short transition. Uh, was it one day unemployed? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's um, it's a blessing. I only been employed uh, unemployed for one day, and that was because the first of October, nineteen eighty-nine, was a Sunday, and uh, we started with SA on the second of, of October. Okay, so it's just a technicality. All right, so you yeah. get yourself <laughs> you get yourself settled in as a. As an airline pilot, you've got an older brother who's uh, about mm. 10, 10 years ahead of you in the airline. You've got a bit of a familiarity with the airline. And, uh, and now, you know, within a couple of years, as it's quite common with the, 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 the breed of SAA pilots, we start getting <coughs> excited about some other things, little airplanes and fun things. And, and uh, general aviation starts tickling your fancy. So tell us how you got involved in the, in the GA side of things. Yeah, so when I... Uh started in the airline it was on as a boy pilot on on uh, classic jumbos and from there i moved on to the 737 200s and then um, shortly after that i got an um, opportunity to to uh, locate to cape town and so i flew the 737 there for three years and i was about uh, seven years in the airline when um, when i went um, i was lucky enough to get a, a position on the 747 400 and uh, during those um, times, I actually, uh, during, the, uh, during that phase, we did a lot of flying um, to Miami, and we spent like four nights uh, in Miami because we were waiting for the next airplane to, to come sure. that, so that we can take it home. And, uh, and during that phase, I thought, well, what shall I do with my time? Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to do something interesting like seaplane flying, so I did that. I started with, uh, went to Brown Seaplane Base, started flying seaplanes, and uh, from there, I decided to do an, an ATP, an American ATP, and I did that also on a on multi-engine uh, seaplane. Okay, so let me put a little clip up there for, mm. the, for the folk to see. This is a very recent clip. You're taxiing in the last part of your uh, uh, seaplane flight and recently went into Miami again. Mm. 
Yeah, that, can, I, can I talk? Yes, uh, go for it. Okay, so that's a brown seaplane base, which is in Winter Haven in Florida. It's like in central Florida, just to the south of Kissimmee. And uh, that's where uh, these guys have <laughs> had a school for many, many years. Um, they were actually quite friendly with, uh, with Richard Bach as well. And uh, on a later photograph uh, that you've got there, uh, Richard Bach's house will be in the background. There, there it is. Okay. So tell us the story about this here. Is that, this is the same lake that we saw a minute ago? Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's Lake Jesse, in, uh, and that's really where, uh, where these guys, uh, the Browns, uh, hang out. Okay, and is this the, the base kind of aeroplane that you would use if anyone wants to go do a float plane no. rating, you'd go on this cub with floats? Yeah, you know, sometimes they've got other aeroplanes there. They might have a mall or a, uh, uh, maybe a Cessna, a little Cessna or a Taylor Craft or something like that. And when I did my, um, my ATP, I did on a United Consultants 2NB, which is a very interesting aeroplane. It's, um, it's uh, really an awkward looking thing. It, it's, um, it was um, a contraption that they, that they built um, using the, um, the Republic CV as a base. They took the, the uh, pusher engine uh, at the back off, lengthened the, the uh, fuselage, lengthened the, the wings a little bit, and then uh, put two tractors on, on, on the front. And, uh, Okay, so, so that's what you started flying. And I know you've, you've taken a lot mm. of people out there. You've exposed a lot of people uh, to float planes, and particularly Brown's uh, seaplane base. Mm. And, uh, and you continue to go there regularly to keep up the, the, the water landings. Um, just, just tell yeah. us a little bit, if we can just pause there, the difference between a, a float plane and an amphibian. Is there, is there much distinction there? Okay, so I know you said that I'm a float plane pilot. I'm actually a seaplane pilot. So a seaplane pilot is the collective noun. So you okay. get boats and amphibians and, uh, and float planes. And some floats are also amphibian. So you can have uh, uh, wheels that come out from the floats or you can have just straight floats okay. or you can have a, a, an actually a boat hull in which, like a Catalina and, uh, and uh, the, 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 the Twin B and the B and the Canada 215 that type of thing. It's a boat. Okay. Um, but it's, the collective is a seaplane. Seaplane. All right. Sorry mm. for that. We'll, we'll get all the details <laughs> as we go along. And I'm hoping that one day uh, we will take it to one more aircraft type and you give me my seaplane rating. <coughs> Looking forward to that in the <coughs> States one day. Okay. So uh, do you need to start anywhere or does it not really matter to get a seaplane rating? It could be on a float. It can be on a, uh, an no. amphibian. It doesn't make a difference. No, I just did it um, on on a cab. Uh, you know what? A cab is such a fantastic little machine. I mean, you, you you've got to love it. And uh, to do that on uh, on floats, it's even even better. But um, <laughs> more better, so, more more better. Yes. Um, but um, the th you'll get some people uh, that start flying on floats. They've never flown on land planes, and uh -huh. they they. They start on floats. It's like, I suppose you get helicopter pilots that never flew fixed wing. You know, the same thing. <laughs> okay, but, sure. Um, Makes sense. You know. All right, so it's a, it's a bit of a discipline, and uh, there's, a, there's a couple mm. of spaces in between uh, different types of landing. Tell mm. us a bit about that, uh, that sort of takeoff profile. I mean, I know you didn't see that video now, but you're very familiar. That's the Catalina. You, uh, we'll come to the detail of the Catalina <coughs> shortly, but, but just uh, seaplanes, you know, on the water, okay. getting faster, getting airborne, etc. Right. So typically, um, you'll see that it's got uh, those uh, short little floats on the wingtips. Now, those those floats don't really touch the water. Okay. It, they will, um, because they'll probably break off. 
if they if they do touch the water during the takeoff run. But what they therefore is the if the airplane comes to a standstill and wants to settle, it settles on one float. Otherwise, it it will probably sink because the, the the wing will run full of water and so on. But um, so to do this takeoff, you um, will uh, position into wind. The aeroplane will naturally turn into wind. So you'll have to taxi quite a quite a way to to so you've got enough water uh, so that you can actually get the aeroplane off on that. So the aeroplane will will weather cock into wind, and that's what you want because you want the, the lowest possible speed over the water because uh, you know uh, drag. Um, adds exponentially with uh, with the speed, uh, or increases exponentially as your speed speed increases. Sure. Anyway, so so you want the lowest possible uh, speed in the water, uh, while you've got the max maximum amount of uh, speed over the um, airflow over the wings, okay. and then you'll uh, you'll open the taps. You'll just uh, uh, apply thrust. Uh, the um, Catalina levers are at the top. And you'll just uh, slowly and surely just uh, walk them open. That's what uh, old Charlie Clemens used to say to me: walk <laughs> them open like this, mm. because uh, you don't want them to backfire or to or to uh, um, uh, to not be happy there. Um, and eventually uh, they will take, and you'll apply f uh, power. Uh, what you'll do with the stick is you'll keep the, the stick as, as far back as possible. Probably you'll have serious amount of aileron into. Um, to uh, to try and lift uh, lift that sponson out of the water as quickly as possible. Okay. And get the get the wings to fly, and then um, the aeroplane will um, will just through the the thrust application and the fact that you've got the the, the stick back, uh, it'll it'll want to pitch up. The nose wants to pitch up, and uh, so you'll wait for that. And then as the aeroplane plows through the water, uh, like a big mass of of water will build up in front of the plane. Sure. And as it actually gets enough speed to lift over that or onto that um, wave, that's like a second lift. And then from there on, you can ease the, 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 the stick forward and the aeroplane should uh, climb on the step, much like a speedboat. Sure. You know, and then you, you get it on the step with as little, little as possible um, a drag and then you fly it off. Okay, as you're describing it there, I'm sitting there picturing me sitting in my boat with the mm. family and that, that first bit of this plowing and then it gets in the, and boating on the plane. And so you're right over that and now the aircraft is now accelerating rapidly and then the, that second part mm. is surely then quite quick before you get airborne. The first bit of energy no, is used No, really. not really. Not okay. necessarily. Yeah, the, well, it, it can be quick if you've got a little bit of wind to help you, but uh, you know what, as I said, you, as your speed increases, the drag increases, sure. and uh, so it, it really wants to keep you down on, on, uh, onto the water. When you have a float plane, um, there's a technique where you really you actually lift one, one float out of the water, okay. and you're just on the one point two. All right. So it reduces the drag, and you just fly off, off the one float. Okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, you know, it sounds, it sounds way more difficult than what it is. <laughs> I always say to, to, to fly a float plane is um, it's actually quite easy. But it's not forgiving. Okay. So well, a little <laughs> ding will, will sink your <laughs> yeah. aeroplane. All right. I know you've got a story about that <laughs> coming later. And we're going to dive in a bit deeper on Catalina shortly. Um, okay. So it's quite unconventional to go across. I know a lot of people, particularly mm. South Africans, uh, we, although we, we're quite well regarded in the industry around the world, there's, this, there's almost an urgency or a, a desire to have a European or an FAA license. And many people do it. But it's quite unconventional to end up in the United States doing your FAA on a seaplane. So 
I thought that that was quite a quite an interesting one. So now you you've got your FAA, you've got your seaplane rating, and I suppose you know through the next couple of years visiting Miami a lot, you're flying there a lot. But then you come back uh, and you're now in Cape Town and close to the Stellenbosch uh, Flying Club, and you start sort of poking your nose around there and getting to know the people. <coughs> What's happening in your GA back home now? Okay, so so what happened now? Uh, this was like uh, late '90s, maybe '96 or thereabouts, and. Uh, one day I was, uh, I phoned up Pierre Goes, a very good friend of mine, and I said to, to him, Pierre, what's happened to the Harvards? You know, the skytyping Harvards, I don't see them anymore. Um, and uh, he said, man, let me find out for you. And uh, the two of us put our heads together, and before long we decide, well, this is a nice little project for us. We'll get the skytyping going again. Because by that stage, the Harvard Club couldn't pay the bills, and the airplanes were impounded by the maintenance guys in, at Rand Airport. Okay. So I said, no, man, it's not a good idea to impound all six of them because there were six, six sky typers. Okay. Um, so release five of them. You can hold on to one, and then we can at least make money with the five to pay you off. Otherwise, you're never going to get your money. <laughs> and so they fell for this. And, uh, Sounds like yeah, good so negotiation. So let's just pause there and describe then the, what is sky typing. I mean, I think we all have a sense of what it is. You're typing something in the sky. How does it work? How does this uh, play out? Okay, listen. It'll blow your socks right off. Um, <laughs> sky typing is, is, is an amazing little uh, product. And, and I, I didn't start, really. We just rescued it. Okay. It, it was started in, in um, the States. And when the Harvard Club started flying, they thought, well, this is a nifty idea of, of making, making some money. Um, and uh, they tried to run it commercially. And I don't think it was all that successful because, uh, you know, there were all sorts of, Politics once again, you know. <laughs> uh, but but when when Pierre and I stepped in, we realized we're going to just do it for the love of the show. That we're just going to do it for the love. So what sky tapping is is this: it's imagine a dot matrix printer. If you remember dot, dot yeah. matrix printer yeah. from, from when you were still young and beautiful. <laughs> anyway, so it's a, a, a printer that prints with dot matrix. Nine is the the sort of ideal uh, number of dots. That's why it was called a nine dot matrix printer. Okay. So, but for us, uh, the, the minimum amount of dots that you can use is five. So if you, you can imagine if you want to print the letter E, you need uh, two airplanes on the outside to make the long legs of the E, one in the middle, the, sh the, the, the short legs, and uh, another two airplanes um, just to keep the space and to basically make to make the vertical line of the E. Sure. So, so, so each dot is an airplane in your description. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we fly fly these five airplanes in formation. So um, we worked out that we need the airplanes 50 meters apart. Okay. So you, you figure that you know. So you're flying a formation, a, a line of breast formation, but 50 meters apart. Wow. That is, yeah. And we fly <laughs> it in a slight curve, because you have to. You paint uh, your um, your word. You, you you're going to type your word like in a curve around the stadium or the the beach or wherever you're going to type. Okay. So so now we've got these five airplanes and it was it was five Harvards. So <clears throat> so what do we need? We need a laptop. Okay, just a laptop so you can type the word. Yeah. And now that message from the laptop needs to be sent to a printer port. So we made a printer port on the airplane. 
And <laughs> a laptop and a harbor it, doesn't always go together in the same sentence. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and um, so when you print, you write your little word, Alex McPhail or Nashua, 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 or whatever you want to type, and you press enter, your airplanes need to be in the correct position and to start the, the first uh, typing, the first letter. And now what you do, what happens, and this is the rest of the hardware that you need. So from that printer, there must be a little sender, there must be a transmitter yeah. from the lead airplane that carries the computer. Okay. Um, and that airplane sends a message to these five okay. uh, solenoids, one on each airplane, that will open a, a, a oil valve that will uh, put a measured amount of oil onto the exhaust of each airplane, and that will create the dot. Ah. It's actually very, very simple. So you've got one transmitter, five receivers. Each airplane will have a receiver, and the computer works out to send a signal to which airplane to open um, the um, which port. So really, just like a dot matrix printer. Okay. And it's fantastic. <laughs> and it worked, so <laughs> and you did that for a while. So that sounds very interesting and unusual, you know. It's not something that you see much anymore either. Um, but that no. that uh, got you kind of stuck in there at the Harvard Club, and uh, and 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 because people saw you doing kind of unusual things, more unusual things started coming your way. So, so what was going on there at that time? I know at the time you weren't yet an instructor, and uh, but people were asking you because you were involved in something strange. I've got this <coughs> other something strange, and can you help out? Yeah. Well, you see what <laughs> what happened there is. Um, so now people would come to me and say, listen, would you help me with a forced landing procedure? Or would you help me with a whatever in the airplanes? And do, would you do a PPL test for me? And I said, dude, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not an instructor. They said, what? You're not an instructor. You've got eight and a half thousand flying hours. You fly jumbo jets. You fly Harvards and all sorts of bits and pieces. But why, uh, why can't you help me? I said, no, man, I still don't even know how to fly myself. And... Um, and uh, another uh, thing that happened was, um, I, I told you about this, Ralph Garlick bought uh, a MiG-15 in the, in the UK. Okay. And him and, um, and his uh, partner in crime, um, James Craven, Doc Craven's son. And the two of them had this MiG-15 in the UK. But it was a very, very difficult airplane to operate. It was temperamental and so on. So they decided, you know what, they're going to give that up and they're going to buy a Strike Master. And they brought the Strike Master and flew it through Africa down to Cape Town. Wow. Wonderful. Yeah. And like when they landed in Stellenbosch, I happened to see them struggling with the ejection seat with the, with the straps and stuff. So I went over to help them. And uh, so we struck up a friendship. And he said, listen, I, I need you to get your instructor's rating so that you can help us fly this machine. Anyway, so that was the story. And <laughs> so then you started flying Strike Masters. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's very similar to an Impala, really. Okay. It, it was it had a, a different mark of the same Viper engine, you know. Okay. So I started flying those, and um, but the, uh, the 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 big thing was then that the, that I really needed to help the guys with uh, with with their little airplanes at at Stellenbosch. So I, I I thought let me do an instructor's rating. Okay. Get myself an instructor's qualification, and I got this, and uh, that was um, well. Yeah, I was an instructor before, and 
this was a new thing for me, but I really, really enjoyed it. And you know what I, what I, what I learned? One of the things that really stand out for me is that, you know, we always thought there's no one fifty or there's no one seventy, and you'll pull your nose up at, at a thing like that. Those airplanes are absolutely brilliant. They are so fantastic, and they are. It is such a pleasure to fly them. Sure. And and uh, what great machines and great tools they are. Mm. But uh, but we were just never exposed to it, and so the whole new world opened up uh, to me. Yeah, you know, in that. It is a, it's, a, anyway. it's an interesting thing that's going down a whole new avenue. And what's, what I find very interesting when you told me this story earlier was that this wasn't something that you'd thought up, but under the urgence mm -hmm. and suggestion of your friends and colleagues, uh, you thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. So that's quite fascinating. Yeah. And I'll tell you another thing. You know, you had to, you, you had to have 70% to pass, and there were two subjects, and I had 70% for each of them, you know. <laughs> so I just just made it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to instruction nothing, again just now. But okay, so, special there. Yeah, when, when you, uh, okay, so now you're getting a bit more evolved and a bit more established. And then I'm going to flash up this picture here. And this is the CB, uh, you know, on this lake. There mm. looks like it's gaining a bit of speed there. I can't quite tell. Maybe it's just getting onto the step now. So tell us a bit how the CB came into the picture there. Now you've been oh, flying on and off uh, seaplanes for a while. So uh, yeah. how does the CB fit in? Yeah, so... So Brenton De La Harp, uh, you guys might know him. He's um, uh, he's with Cathay, lovely guy. He bought the CB. This was a dream for him to have the CB and to operate it out of the waterfront. I didn't think it was going to work, but anyway, he um, he convinced a couple of friends to buy into this thing for with him, and eventually they got the thing going. But um, uh, then it was just at the time that he was leaving for Cathay for Hong Kong, so he needed somebody to just run with it a little bit. So I said, yeah, well, okay, I'll help you with that. And uh, because I think they, they wanted to do a movie. That's right. They wanted to do an, a, an ad. And they had appetizers dam. And okay. the airplane had to be ready. And it was like, oh, it was, they were really gunning to get, to, to, to get the area going. And then uh, uh, they, right on the day that we had to fly the airplane out, it was windy, like you can't believe it. And we taxied out and it, it was a terrible day for the first flight in this airplane. I've never flown one before. Um, I, I just flew it on my um, test pilot's rating. So, um, and I got to the runway and we did the run up and it was making the most hor horrific noises. And if, I so wanted to fly, but eventually <laughs> we turned back and we came back and I said to Dudley uh, Laveau, the guy that was uh, the, the technician, I said, man, there's something not right with this engine. And he said, he went and he took it and he opened it, uh, he did a power check on it yeah. and the gearbox blew. <laughs> anyway. Oh, so good we, decision. <laughs> so we put that airplane on a, on a low bed, took it up Salori's Pass, stuck it on the dam and it was, and the, the whole movie's plan was a little bit changed, but the airplane was there, but it was just stationary. Okay, well, where there's, yeah. a, where there's a world, there's a way. You made it work. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> no, I can take no credit for that. All right. And then, okay, so now um, you've obviously, you've been flying uh, seaplanes for a while now, and, um, mm. and now also with the CB, you, you start getting involved in, in all sorts of other things. But uh, before we get to the sort of movies and things, Tell me about uh, how you start to get involved in the Catalina. Where does that sort of uh, story start for you? Uh, yeah, okay, that's, you've got, have you got time? 
I got down. <laughs> okay, let me tell you. So in a, about, uh, I would say, uh, either early 99 or end of 98, thereabouts, I get a phone call from a guy, a, a Spaniard. His name is uh, George Suarez. And he says to me, uh, he tracked me down. I don't know how or what was the reason why he got hold of me. But he said, um, he's got a proposition. Let's, um, there, there are three Catalinas in Portugal, and they do firefighting in their summer. Yep. And he reckons that we need them in our summer. So let's fly them down to, uh, to Cape Town every summer. And do the firefighting. Now, quick, I quickly did the maths, and I said, "No, this is not going to work." I mean, it's 50 hours ferry each Catalina yeah, to well. just get them down to the fire season, and then no, I, I didn't think it was going to work. But anyway, um, he asked me to to look into it, so I went to the Air Force because I had good comms with the Air Force at the time because we were, there was really the pilots that were that were doing the sky typing for me. A lot of the, those guys, and. Um, so, uh, the Air Force guy said, well, you know what, it's not really our job to do firefighting. It, it's, it's these civilian contractors that will do it. We're just there to help if, it, it, if, it really, uh, if we really have to. And um, well, with the sums, it just wouldn't work, you know. So, I, I, I phoned old um, George Suarez and I said to him, listen, we, it's not going to work. This is not going to work. A year later... I'm sitting on my stupa. I used to live in Stellenbosch, and I, yeah, and you can't believe the fires. Every the whole Cape is burning. It's just 99, 2000. Those big fires. Said, I remember that. I was living yeah. there too. Sure. I said we really need to do something about this, and I thought, wait a bit. Let me phone George Suarez and ask if that Catalina is still available. Yeah. He says they for sale. <laughs> okay. So, oh, great. <laughs> so, so then I, uh, I phoned up my brother. Uh, Fantastic guy, my brother, and uh, we uh, we started dreaming. And uh, before long, we went to Portugal to go and have a look at these airplanes because we said, no, let's go and have a look at them first because maybe they buckets or bolts, you know. Yeah. But they were beautiful. They were well, beautiful seventy-year-old airplanes, and uh, we thought, well, let's see if we can buy them. But we had one constraint, and that is that we didn't have money. <laughs> <laughs> Just that little constraint, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we're going to buy three Catalinas, but we ain't got no money. All right. And uh, so we went down and we, uh, we tried to get sponsors. And the idea was to brand them, you know, and to make them the... Uh, there was a, a number of big organizations that were very keen at the time. The government was also very keen at the time. But I don't think they could put their mind, get their minds around this, these old airplanes flying um, in the... Um, in their fire season, and, and, and for them to to, to uh, invest so much in, money into an organization <laughs> like that. But you know what? They, what then happened was uh, on I don't know how, but uh, Kennedy uh, Bombardier uh, heard about us, yeah. and they phoned uh, my brother and I up, and we, we and they flew us into Montreal, okay. and they stuck us on a Learjet, and we, and we flew to Ontario to North Bay, Ontario, and did a. A nice flight in a Canada 215 there on the lakes. Oh, wow. That was April, April 2000, trying to sell us 
uh, fire bombers. Fire bombers. <laughs> so you've obviously you'd created enough of a buzz about yourselves and your yeah. your 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 story with the Catalinas, and you'd created such a presence that people thought this is the real deal. Let's get straight to the source, and we'll sell well, them new. The real deal. <laughs> we'll, we'll sell them new airplanes. We don't know that they have it, no money, but uh, yeah, good for well, you. <laughs> it was the real deal, but those airplanes are wickedly expensive, and we we couldn't. Uh, you know what? Yeah, we did, we didn't pull it off. And, and the funny thing is now, when we came back from Portugal after having looked at looked at the fire uh, at the airplanes, and they were beautiful. Oh. You know what? The fires were out. Uh, and very quickly, the people forgot about it, and they said, "Well, the impetus we is don't gone really now. need that." Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, exactly. We lost the impetus. But that project kept on for about eighteen months, and uh, towards the when their fire season started, uh, I actually went to Portugal and I flew and I did uh, some firebombing with them. Okay. And if I say I did firebombing, <laughs> there's a little bit of license to that. Sure. So I, <laughs> you know, it's a real specialist job. So I'm. I, I did some flying, but uh, you're part of a crew. I stood, I stood with big eyes behind these guys. Okay, great. And I want to just mm. uh, start uh, zooming in there a little bit. So there's a picture that you've you've taken, and I think this is the Canada. Uh, sorry, this this you, you've taken some great photos. I can see by the photos that you shared with me mm. that your time in Portugal was amazing, and you've got and and, and this this uh, plays out to how you uh, I experienced dealing with you, uh, you know, in in the work context, learning being a friend, a colleague, the meticulous attention to detail. You've got these photos and you've taken these notes such that you can look at your pictures again and, and remind yourself, or should you have got this Catalina deal going, there's some details and some almost instructor notes here. So I love what you've written here. It says, uh, difficult to judge height above glassy water. And there you can see that yellow um, pontoon mm. there on the end. And then the, the picture below it has touched down with the, the spray everywhere. So tell us a okay. little bit about this. Uh, you're in Portugal now, and you're doing some water. Learning. So a bit about the airplane, a bit about mm. Portugal, and a bit about the you know height over water, etc. Right. So so first of all, let me just correct you. That is not the Catalina. That that is a, that's a Kennedy two one five. Okay. So it's also got big radial engines. In fact, it's got those R twenty eight hundred Pratt and Whitney's. Uh, so twenty eight hundred cubic inches per engine. Two thousand one hundred sure. horses aside. It is it's massive, and it's really wonderful, wonderful engines. And uh, those, uh, that airplane was purpose-built fire bomber. It was built around the water tanks. Oh, and uh, uh, you know what? It's a long time ago. It's 20 years ago. But I think on one of the photos you showed me and you read, it said 5,300 liters. Yeah. So that, that was the capacity of, of uh, the Canada 215. Now, the, the next the, the version of it, the 415, was a turbine airplane. That, they, they upped it a little bit. But, so those ones were just, we couldn't even reach. But... but it was an off chance that we could get 215, second-hand 215s with the radial engines. Sorry, your question was... Okay, so you're okay, right, so you go to Portugal. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Right, no, that, that, that actual uh, picture was not taken in Portugal. That was in Canada. That oh, was on, okay. uh, on North Bay, in North Bay, Ontario, oh, wonderful. Uh, with the Canadair uh, airplane. And uh, so those two pictures. And uh, yes, it was uh, April. There was still some ice on the lakes. So we had to pick uh, a fine uh, spot between the, the, the ice sheets uh, to scoop the water. And then there was a little island, and we bombed the island with, with, the, with the water. Um, In the practice run. Okay, while you're talking yeah. about that, let's talk. So, yeah. so you don't load up this thing full of water. You actually scoop as you go. Well, how, does that, uh, yeah. how does that principle work well, for bombing? Yeah, you, listen, you can. You can load it up because you'll see on the side it will have a, a big, you know, like a, a pressure refueling point where you just 
can force water in there. But uh, you, you're not going to do that because really the, uh, this thing is, is massively efficient because it can scoop on the go. Okay. So, so underneath uh, each water tank, uh, literally, if I can, if you can imagine the size of my of my hands now, this is the size of of a scoop underneath uh, each of these water tanks. On the, I'm talking Canada, not okay. talking talking um, Catalina, and you can have the scoop open as you land, because it's a little drag, but it's not massive, massive drag, and it won't break off. So you land, and as you land, as you touch down, as the scoops go into the water, and it's not a massive scoop, it's this size. Yeah. The ram effect of the water, it just pushes into that tank, and it just fills up the tank from, from below. And I explained to you before that it can't overfill, because under the armpits of the airplane, you can imagine, there's a big hole. So as, it, as these tanks fill up, they just fill up in the water, the excess water will spout out the, underneath the, the armpits. So some pictures, some, some of these pictures, if you look carefully, you'll see the water coming out. Um, under the wing uh, the roots. But anyway, so um, within 12 seconds on a Kennedy, wow. you will fill those water tanks. So you literally touch down on the water. As you feel the drag, you'll add a little bit of power and you will very soon, those gauges just go whoop, 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 and they're full. Okay. And you just add power, retract the, the, um, the, um, the little scoops, you close them up, and the aeroplane will release you. The, the water will release you because you've, you've got so much less drag and you just fly off. Okay. Beautiful. So, so it's quite well, a you, yeah, it's slick operation. Now you're five and, a, five and a half tons heavier than sure. what you were 12 seconds before. <laughs> so it's quite a dynamic uh, operation. And then again, once mm. or later, you're going to be dumping and you will end up mm. uh, five tons uh, lighter again exactly. instantly. Yeah. Okay, so, it, okay, so let, me, let me put up another picture and then we can talk a bit more about the... Uh, um, the firebombing. So here's another, I love, the, I love your mm. notes here, Gideon, that's great. Once the attack profile and escape route is decided, the firebomber will move in to release its load, in this case, again with the Canada, 5,300 liters of water and retardant. And there's a picture of, uh, you know, going right over the fire and there's just this spray coming along there. So, mm. okay, so that's that instant now where you've, uh, obviously you're pitching away from the fire, but you helped with this five ton release of load. Uh, is, does it just all go in one click? Well, you, you can decide how you want to do it uh, on the Kennedy. Mm, let me think about it on the... Uh, I have to wreck my mind now about the... Uh, let's talk Kennedy first. Okay. So, so this one, uh, it's got two bomb doors, one under each tank. Okay. And you can select whether you want them to open at the same time. It's called in salvo. Or if you want to drop them one and then the other one, it's called in train. Okay. If you can drop the water in train. So you can decide whether you want a wide patch of water or a long patch of water. Or what you can do is you can just open one door and then come back and open the other door on a second attack, you know, sure. depending on the size of your fire or okay. lots of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, on, your, on your control column, you will have a, an arm switch where you arm the, um, the door, the, the bomb doors, yeah. and one push on the button will, will then open the door depending on how you selected it. Okay. But you want to have that armed when you're flying into the fire, even if your run is not good. Because if you need to release that water to get light sure. to get out, you, yeah. need, you want to do that. It's quite a dangerous occupation, this firebombing. 
you're going low, there's often gotcha. terrain around you. I mean, you don't have much control how you run over the fire. You kind of got to run along a safety aspect of the fire and, yeah. and whatever escape routes there are, that's, that's what you've got to deal with. Yeah. And then you've got the thermals, the smoke, the visibility. Absolutely. If you can see nothing. It's like, it's, uh, it's hot. It, it, it smells. It's, um, yeah, it's quite scary. A turbulence in there. And, uh, and you, that's why you want to check out your run. Because you want to make sure, because you're going to go into that fire, into that smoke, and you want to make sure that, that, that there is an, a way out. Yeah. You don't want to go towards a, a rocky outcrop and then leave it a little bit late. Okay, so talk us through the Catalina a little bit now, particularly the, right, the, okay. the water and the bombing. So you'll find that most of these seaplanes have got the, the throttle quadrant in the roof. And the reason for that is that you can have access to the bow. Um, so you need to go, be able to get into the bow of this um, aeroplane so that you can maybe tie it on when you're mooring somewhere. Okay. Makes you know, sense. So that, that's why they really not normally on the, on the, um, on the pedestal like they are with a conventional aeroplane. Now, that, having said that, the 215 is like that. It is on the pedestal. But I, d I can't remember if there, if there was really access to, to the bow on that, on that machine. But because uh, it's a purpose-built fire bomber. Sure. But the Catalina was definitely well. It was a patrol bomber, and there was also a gunner that needed to be up front. You know that, yeah. and uh, and so on, and the bomb aimer and all sorts of things like that. So, um, but the reason why uh, Mr. Co-pilot has got his hands on the thrust lever is not really to set the thrust. It's just to hold the thrust levers there, or the, uh, the throttles actually, I should call them, because they're vibrating like you cannot believe. Okay. And they will they will vibrate close if you if you don't hold them there. Okay. So the thrust, yeah. And and he will have a very specific thrust setting. Sure. Uh, which I unfortunately can't remember, but let's say it's 45 inches of manifold pressure uh, that you need to keep for the takeoff run and uh, 2700 RPM on the on the prop levers, uh, and uh, then the you can hear that there's quite a bit of conversation now. What on this on that Dutch Catalina? What is very different is that they've got good comms, okay. because it's so noisy with those two engines right here. Uh, you're sitting in between those two engines, and the, normally the Oh, headsets. It's just not. It's an old aeroplane. Yeah, it's old, man. <laughs> and um, so you will. You you can even with hand signals. Often there will be a, an SOP where you say, okay, I need the first uh, power reduction. You know, so you'll take takeoff thrust, and then you'll have climb thrust, and you'll you'll have meter power or whatever it was. I can't remember the details of it, uh, Alex. Uh, <laughs> okay. We'll uh, forgive you for that. 20 years is a long time. Yeah. But uh, it sounds like a... Let me tell you an interesting thing. So, <laughs> so where are the mixtures? Uh, so you see that there yeah, are two, oh, the, the, those, the two throttle levers and the two prop levers. Where are the mixtures? Yeah, I'm not sure. So the mixtures, the mixtures used to live with a flight engineer that sat in the wing route. Oh. So he sat between the two engines right there in that little parasol of the wing. Okay. And he had, a, he had the, the levers there. And uh, then the, the captain had a telegraph. So really he had those, those uh, string of switches in front of him. I don't think you've got a picture of that. The captain will say, mixtures auto-rich. And then a little light will go on in the engineer station. And he'll say, oh, mixtures auto-rich. The captain will... And he'll set them to auto-reach and he'll switch the light off and the captain will say, oh, 
My mixtures are now auto-reach. Let's go. You know, that type of thing. So it, it was really, really old-fashioned. Now, for firebombing, um, they, they only needed two pilots because, I mean, otherwise you have to pay three people. Sure. So they, they took all those um, uh, gadgets and levers and stuff from out the, the wing route and it actually sits behind the, the co-pilot. So you can't see it from that position. But if the co-pilot will turn around, would be able to set the mixtures. Okay. So that becomes the co-pilot's job, to set mixtures? Well, yeah, it's a team, you know. So uh, I, I would imagine it would be the co-pilot's job. Or, but, but it's pretty straightforward. It's like a Dakota, you know. You've got uh, auto-reach, auto-lean. Sure. You don't really fiddle with the mixtures like you do with some aeroplanes. Okay. So I, I, could, I could sense through the, the pictures that you sent me and the notes that you'd made that it was a really enjoyable time there. You, you know, mm. It was about a week, intense flying every day, all day, jumping in different types, you know, and... And just mm. really getting stuck in there. Um, by the end of this, uh, this uh, was it already the case that the Catalina proposal was over and you were just now helping out a bit later? No, not at all. No. Um, so so I, we decided that the project isn't dead until it's dead. Okay? So we're going to keep on running with it. And um, what I didn't tell you is these, these, these three airplanes were Chilean registered. Okay? So they were Chilean registered airplanes flying in Portugal um, with Chilean captains, Portuguese co-pilots, wow. because Chile, in Chile they speak Spanish. Sure. And yes, it's closely related, but still, if you want to speak to a Portuguese firefighter on the ground, you need somebody that can speak Portuguese. Okay. So that's why the co-pilots were Portuguese. And the co-pilots were from this company, Aero Condor, in, in Portugal, and the, uh, the captains came with the airplanes. Okay. So the captains didn't like me at all because I was a threat. I was going to take their job away. <laughs> so they, 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 they saw me as the guy that's going to potentially put them out of a job because if, if we buy the airplanes, what are they going to do? Yeah. So they've got this, this job where they come once a year to Portugal and fight fight fires for three months. Yeah, okay. Makes you know, sense. But... <laughs> and the, the and the co-pilots were told, listen, be nice to this guy. I might buy our airplane. <laughs> There's always that sort of uh, back behind the scene thing going on there. Yeah. But I want to put this but other we, picture up. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, we'd, we'd, um, every morning we would pre-flight those airplanes and warm the oil. Okay. And you know it's got 45 gallons of oil on each engine. <laughs> Wow. Amazing because it, it's a, it's designed to fly for days, you know. Well, not really days, but yeah. a good long, story. long, <laughs> long time. Yeah. I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. I want to put this picture up quickly, and then you can carry on there. So here's a photo. Obviously, towards the end, there is a picture of a young Gideon in the top in the cockpit, and your note says, "I suppose every adventure has to end sometime." This one must rate as one of the finest experiences I've ever had, a true highlight. And uh, in, in true Gideon style, the meticulous attention to detail, I can see, I can see your <coughs> eyes lighting up as you're telling me the story now, and I'm sure you're reliving the moment, uh, as it were. Tell us oh. about uh, how you rounded out this trip and your relationship ongoing with this crew. Okay, so now see that Catalina is a black one. Yeah. So that's a different Catalina. So I was very, very fortunate that I flew not... Not only the three Catalinas in Portugal, I also flew this one with Charlie Clements. Now, he was a guy, he was a guy like you and I, um, a Delta pilot, but he called himself, he, he said, I'm not RD. So I said, what's RD? He says, real Delta. He was not real Delta. He was in one of those airlines that was bought 
by Delta, and he happened to get okay. onto the seniority list. All right. But a lovely guy, lovely, lovely guy. So he, on an auction, he bought that Catalina, and they said, okay, well done. Now, um, you know what? We'll throw in a Dakota as well. So he'd, he had that. Trust me, that's the truth. And he had those two airplanes, that uh, Catalina with uh, big uh, right cyclone engines, R2600 right cyclones. Now, normally a Catalina will have R1830 engine, which is the same as a DAC. Okay. It's just a different mark. I think a DAC has got a Dash 92 and this one has got a Dash 94. But anyway, so um, the, uh, the, the right cyclone engine was a, just a nine-cylinder. Okay. It's a single bank, but 1,750 horses. That's a monster. Yeah. And funny enough, his deck was a Navy deck and it had the same engines. Oh, okay. And, yeah. And they had, at some stage, they, they had an engine failure on the deck. So the time with, that I met Charlie Clemens, he, um, he uh, by the way, he's passed away now. He's, uh, he was quite, he's quite a little bit, quite a bit older than me. And eventually he, he, he got some disease and I, I missed out on, on that last bit of his life. Unfortunately, we, we lost contact. But uh, anyway, um, so, because the DAC was just parked there next to the Catalina, and they, they, they kept the rum inside this DAC, they called it the aluminium room. Isn't it beautiful? And every night we would sit under, under the wing of that aeroplane and, uh, and drink his uh, Mount Gay rum and, uh, and uh, just tell stories. It was just a fantastic, fantastic time. So I met this guy, and we, uh, I, I flew his Catalina uh, a number of times, and that's why uh, I think at the end, when I left Miami in, this was 2004, I, uh, I knew that this, this was the end of the, of the Catalina adventure. <laughs> okay. there, there was other things that were on the horizon. Gideon, we've got so many pictures and so many stories. Uh, uh, we could carry on all night here. So let me, let me say great stories on the Catalina, but there are two other things that I do want to talk about before we, uh, uh, before we <coughs> sign mm. off. So now you've, uh, you've done a, a whole experience of seaplanes. You are significantly experienced in seaplanes. and probably the most hours of seaplanes in the country uh, as it stands today. Um, certainly when people talk about seaplanes, your name comes up very quickly. But that's not all. So now I'm going to flash up this picture here and I'm calling it Spitfire 1. And this oh. uh, beautiful, beautiful aeroplane is uh, in the sunshine <clears throat> on the green fields. Uh, I presume it's in England. Uh, so is, tell yeah. us the story about this H, looks like H099, this uh, Spitfire. Okay. How much time do we have, Alex? You talk as much as you yeah. like. You okay. carry on. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this Spitfire in its first life was a four squadron Spitfire. Okay. And in my first life, I was also a four squadron dude. Oh, is it the same four squadron? Okay. Same four squadron. Oh, wow. Air Force. Uh, wow. Saf, yeah. Saf, okay. But, so, but this, um, okay, let me start at, at the beginning of the story where uh, a, a bloke by the name of Peter Tuplin comes to me. Uh, he's an Englishman. And he says, uh, I am looking for someone that can teach me how to fly a Harvard because I bought a Harvard project and I'm building the Harvard project. Uh, because I've got a um, um, hurricane project that I want to that I want to build. Okay. And uh, so, so the Harvard will be the stepping stone onto this type of thing because he's he's, he's got chipmunks on that that type of stuff in his license. So, so I've got the Harvard Club Harvard. 
So I said to him, okay, I'll tell you what, this, and this is a true story. Uh, because it's not my airplane, and it, because it belongs to the people of South Africa, I am going to teach you on it, but I'm going to rip you off. It's going to be expensive for you. Okay, do you understand that? He says, yeah, I understand that. And I went to the Harvard Club in Pretoria, and I, and I cleared it with him and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to squeeze every buck that we can out of this Englishman. And... Uh, and and well, you know what? It was it was open. It was, it was otherwise we couldn't have done it. Yeah. Sure. So I said to him, "You'll never fly this Harvard solo, but uh, I'll give you the best training that I can." So off we went, and we did the training there at Fisanta Kral. And uh, after a while, he was very very happy, and he went back home uh, to England. And I kept contact with him. In fact, he bought a house in Cape Town. Okay. Um, yeah. So then Peter Tuplin met up with another gentleman that had a project, Spitfire, and this was the Spitfire, so, but it was a single-seater, and, and this gentleman goes by the name of Paul Pertelli, and he was into tiles, and he was an, an Italian guy, but he's living, well, Italian, of Italian heritage, but he's also an Englishman, and Paul Pertelli, um, uh, teamed up with, with Peter Tuplin, and he said, okay, let's throw all our toys in the same basket and we'll play with it when it's done. And after a while, he, they got the Harvard going. Man, and they were so happy to get the Harvard going. And the first time they went flying in it, and there was an instructor at White Waltham in England, and the, uh, the instructor took them up, and in the top of the loop, they ended up in a spin. Oh. And the next time the same thing, and the next time the same thing, and they thought there's something wrong with the airplane. Okay, but there was nothing wrong with the airplane. But the instructor was just a special guy, you know. So he, he, it's a very different machine. Sure. And somehow I don't know why Peter Tuplin said, you know what? Let's get Gideon in. And they get he got me and 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 I said to Pierre, listen, why why don't you go with me? So we went there and we taught them how to fly their own Harvard in England at White Waltham. Oh, wonderful. And when we left, Paul Potelli said to me, you know what, um, when the Spitfire is finished, you'll come and fly it. I said, oh, so I, what I didn't tell you is that in the meantime, Paul realized that he was never going to fly that thing solo. He was never going to fly it. So he said, let's convert it into a two-seater. Okay. And that's when they made it into a two-seater. So I was a little bit disappointed that they make it into a two-seater. But he said it, it adds to the value because now suddenly you can fly it with someone. Hmm. You can share the experience, you know. And uh, that's why the airplane is in that color because it is a, it's a Dutch color scheme. And the Dutch had two of them, number 98 and number 99. Okay. So that's why that is number 99. Okay, and that is a that is a, an official Vickers modification to have that airplane as a two-seater. Okay, all right. So, so the story goes on, and about a month or two later, or six months, or I don't know how many months, I hear news: Paul Potelli has got cancer, and he's got six months to live. And sadly, within two weeks, he was dead. Ah, and uh, so that was it. And probably two years later. Peter Tuplin phoned me and he said, listen, we've got that airplane, we have to sell it uh, for the, uh, um, the state, but we've got 25 hours. Okay. Paul said that he wants you to fly it. So after Paul was dead, he honored that commitment to me. And, uh, and I went to, um, 
to uh, London to fly that airplane. Wonderful. Fantastic. And there, it was, and that there, was another highlight. <laughs> there's a picture of you with a grin ear to ear in the backseat of this uh, Spitfire mm. in your... Uh, your yeah, <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, That's a happy day. That was fantastic. That, that experience is full body. You smell it. You, uh, you hear it. You touch it. You look at it. It's just absolutely... Absolutely brilliant, that aeroplane. Okay, so it was if, uh, a total highlight. If I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that everyone should have an attempt to go flying in a Spitfire. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it's uh, but it's a uh, it's big bucks, eh? Yeah, it's really big bucks to to fly that thing. But it is uh, it's wonderful. In fact, it was for free for me. Sure. But it was I mean otherwise I would never have been able to afford it. It was but it was so special. Yeah, oh, really wonderful. nice. Gideon, it was special talking to you. It has been an absolute highlight for me too. I've got so much more to talk about, but I think we're going to leave it on that high note with Spitfires and full body experiences. It's just amazing. Uh, you've been a wonderful friend. You've been a wonderful mentor and a, and a big brother to me in so many ways. I really, really appreciate your time today. I know you were a little bit hesitant to share your story online with everybody, but uh, testament to all these quotes, uh, these uh, comments that have come through. There's just people saying, great show and well done and uh, love the detail and wow, awesome. So, Gideon, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Before you run off, can I just say hi to the 43 um, school guys? You said that they they uh, checking in. Go for it, yeah. So, so there you go. Hello, guys. Uh, I wish you can have just as fantastic a career as what I've, I've had. And another one is that Francois Leroux said to me, I must not forget to say hello to him. So hello, Francois. <laughs> Francois was the captain on the freighter as well, and that was the story that we we're going to dig into in uh, part two of this conversation. Oh, Kirian, my goodness. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, privilege, and, and what I really enjoy about these conversations that's been happening is that uh, I get to share like an, a very interesting part. You know, People often look, up, look at airline pilots or, or pilots in general that, that spend a lot of time flying, and they say, well, that's a pilot. They fly airplanes. But there's such a broad facet to people's lives. And you could dive in. You know, we've talked uh, a long time about float planes. I've spoken to people about helicopters and fighters and formation and landing on ships. And there's almost no end to the possibilities. So for those of you who are listening who are in the early days, you know, take the stories that you hear here. But for people like Gideon, you know, th what's out there is broad and diverse. And I'll sign off with this. Gideon was urged by people to become an instructor such that he could help them in their little airplanes. But I quote some of my colleagues and friends that are in the airline, Gideon is the finest instructor at South African Airways. So how's that for coming from someone else said, hey, Gideon, why don't you become an instructor and uh, rounds off to being one of those top, top instructors. So Gideon, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Alex. And thanks for this, uh, for this series. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's going somewhere. Well done. And thanks for everybody listening in. <laughs> Cheers. All the viewers. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm excited to have you on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and remember to subscribe to the show to catch weekly episodes so that you can build your high-performance team.